advanced fission overcomes a lot of the problematic areas of conventional plants. So I think there's a lot of interest in these newer, smaller, advanced designs. And I think because of that fundamentally different approach to how we're tackling the problem, there's just been a lot of interest. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about a fast track for nuclear. The big trend in nuclear energy today is smaller. Small modular reactors are prefabricated, simpler, and walk away safe. They also require a smaller investment, don't appear to have the same financial and schedule risks as their larger cousins. My guest today believes they also have the answer. They've settled on a smaller small modular reactor that is about 15 megawatts. Other SMRs like New Scales, which I profiled in episode 99, are about 80 megawatts. A 15 megawatt facility could be as small as two acres. The other point my guest is trying to make is that they can build a reactor that is walk-away safe. It's air-cooled and doesn't run the risk of a meltdown. He says their design is based on an existing technology that has run for over 30 years. They also house these reactors in striking, almost cathedral-like buildings, which are a far cry from concrete containments on typical nuclear power plants. In addition to their reactors, they also have ambitious plans to reprocess and reuse nuclear fuel. We have discussed this process before in episode 134. To hear my guests tell it, their process might prove to be quite sustainable, with multiple rounds of recycling throughout the unit's life cycle. It's a combination of smaller scale safety and sustainability that's making fast fission options like these a greater possibility for nuclear's energy future. My guest today is Brian Gitt, head of business development for Oaklo, a nuclear technology company based in the Bay Area. In 2020, they applied to the NRC for a permit on their Aurora reactor. Brian says they hope to have the permit in 2025. Oaklo has been a bit of a media darling. Their founders have been profiled in two documentaries over the years, most recently Oliver Stone's film Nuclear and 2017's The New Fire. We need to be building reactors all over the world as soon as we can if we care about climate, if we care about dealing with emissions. We need to build nuclear so they don't build coal or burn other fossil fuels. I asked Brian why Oklo has such popularity with filmmakers. We also discussed why a film like Nuclear may be a sea change in progressive thought on nuclear energy in general. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Gitt. Brian Gitt, head of business development for Oklo. And Brian, I had a chance to talk to New Scale right after they had gotten their permit from the NRC in 2020. Their small modular reactors are planned for about 80 megawatts, and Oklo wants to build megawatt sized units. Is there enough scale there for a megawatt sized nuclear reactor? Well, Oklo's long-term vision is to build a wide range of nuclear fission power plants, including small and large designs. Currently, we're focused on building 15 megawatt electric modular reactors, and we're engaging with customers on projects ranging from 15 megawatts all the way up to 300 megawatts. I think you might be referencing our original reactor size, which was 1.5 megawatts, which we originally applied to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission with. But since then, in talking more with customers, we found a sweet spot 
thought of really starting in around this 15 megawatt level is probably the one that makes sense for us right now. I think we've seen how challenging it can be to build a gigawatt-sized nuclear power plant. There haven't been very many built over the last few years, at least in the United States. What's the benefit of building a 15-megawatt-sized unit over a, say, 80 to 100-megawatt SMR? Smaller reactors are simpler and less expensive to build. We started out small and simple so we could prove things out on the licensing side, learn from that, improve upon it, and then repeat it. And then we could extend that process for future projects as we build up to larger and larger sizes. I mean, I think the unfortunate reality is building large infrastructure projects in the US or Europe or many places around the world is just very time consuming and costly today. And I think that the recent experience with Vogel in Georgia is a good example of this, where there's just been a lot of delays. And, you know, there's some unique things that led to that. You know, we had COVID in there. Westinghouse was going through a bankruptcy during part of that time. But still, what we're seeing in general, it's hard to build any infrastructure, whether you're talking about bridges, roads, buildings, et cetera. And so I think by starting smaller, it really gives us a unique opportunity to simplify and to build momentum and gain traction and then build to larger scale systems over time. Another benefit of your units is that we're told you can use fissile fuel that's already been spent. Where would you get this fuel? Would it be from other nuclear plants? And how would that work? So fast fission helps recycle the existing nuclear waste that's already sitting at many facilities around the U.S. There's enough content just sitting there, enough spent fuel that could really power the U.S. for about 100 years. More than 90 percent of the potential energy still remains in the spent fuel, and that can be used to power advanced reactor designs. Recycling reduces this amount of waste that's ultimately going to be required to be disposed of at some point, and it shortens the time scale of the radioactivity from something that would be on order of like 300,000 years to just a few hundred years. So there's just tremendous benefits of using fast vision kind of advanced reactors to recycle this fuel. You know, we're sitting right now, there's about 85,000 tons of spent fuel in the U.S. It's sitting at these various sites. And, you know, it's a problem. I mean, what are they going to do with it long term? So anything that can help reduce that volume, reduce the long term radioactivity of that material and recycle it is obviously a benefit to everyone that's a key stakeholder in the process. You know, Oklahoma, we're partnering with Argonne National Lab, and we've been awarded multiple Department of Energy contracts currently worth over $17 million to develop waste to energy fuel recycling. This is something that we're actively engaging in. And it's not just for environmental reasons. This is a good thing. We're doing it because of the economic benefits, because fuel is a huge cost center for us. It's one of the most expensive parts of our reactor and to operate. So anything we can do to cut costs by recycling the fuel just makes a ton of economic sense. Right. And so what exactly happens to the spent fuel? You're able to reconstitute it in new rods. Is that the idea? Yeah, it's a, it's a recycling process. It's called pyroprocessing. And it's basically, you're taking that spent fuel from, let's say, a large light water reactor. You're chopping it up. You're dissolving it in this solution and then basically reconstituting it and remanufacturing your fuel. It's creating a closed loop system. So instead of just having that spent fuel go into long-term storage, you're going through a recycling process where you're extracting out as much energy as you can. And ultimately, you could do this multiple times. We plan to recycle fuel that comes out of our own reactors, as well as taking spent fuel from larger conventional reactors. 
Yes, I was about to ask, so what happens after you guys consume the fuel? And you say that you will have your own partially sustaining fuel cycle. So one of the things that we've talked about, I've had Curio on Ed McGinnis. It's a company that's talking about doing a domestic recycling plan. He was saying that the current fuel rods, about 96% of the fuel could be reused. And so is that sort of what you're doing, Brian? It's that 96% or is it something else entirely? Yeah, it's certainly over 90% of the fuel can be recycled and put through this kind of remanufacturing process. So it's a huge majority of it. What about taking ownership of the waste? Has there been any discussion about what it would take for you to actually take ownership of, say, the casks of fuel? Who would ultimately take the spent fuel and supply you? Any facility that we would be building to recycle fuel will be tightly regulated, obviously, and go through a lot of scrutiny. And therefore, we would have to go through all of the appropriate hoops and hurdles to get the appropriate licensing and permit for a facility that is going to be able to take that spent fuel and do that reprocessing, remanufacturing of it. All of that would be dictated per our license agreement with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, et cetera. New Scale got their permit about two and a half years ago as we record this. You told me kind of offline that you think you can get your permit around 2025. How fast could you build a facility after that if 2025 holds? So factory prefabrication means installation can happen quickly. Once we get past this permitting hurdle, we're looking to stand up these systems in less than a year. It doesn't actually take that long to build them. It's mostly this regulatory process. And a lot of that is just because our technology is simpler and less expensive and less complicated to build. And so we're envisioning the entire process taking about two to three years from a signed power purchase agreement to generating power on the grid for a customer. Now, obviously, We've been formally engaged with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission since 2016. There's been kind of a lot of time and effort and investment spent to get to where we're at, which is in this final stages. But once we get through this process initially, we'll have done the big heavy lifting so that we can kind of stamp these out in a much quicker fashion because our design is accommodating almost every possible conceivable condition that you can imagine, whether we're talking about permafrost or avalanches or seismic zones or flooding zones. I mean, we're looking at all of these various different site considerations in developing our safety case around that. And so obviously there'll always be some site-specific accommodation and we're going to have to apply for licenses for future plants. But because we'll have gone through the process and had our basic safety case and approach stamped, we feel confident that we're on track to be able to deliver these plants within a two to three year time frame after we get through this first one. Right. And let's talk a little bit about that, because the structure that we see in a lot of Oklo's materials is a very tall, almost looks like a cathedral, right? It's like an A-frame building, very striking. That's very different from what we see at nuclear power plants, where we see a large concrete containment. Tell us what's the advantage of that kind of structure, and what about the safety concerns? There's a reason why the reactors, a lot of these larger nuclear plants are built with a lot of concrete around them. It's also from safety from the outside, right? Sure. So we're building off of a proven technology that ran for 30 years at Idaho National Lab. What we're building is a sodium fast reactor, and we're not starting from scratch. You know, this isn't a paper reactor. There's over 400 reactor years of experience with the particular type of technology that we're building on. And there's an inherent safety characteristics that are built into the design of this. One is that it's low pressure. So we don't require or use water for our coolants or high pressure. Instead, we 
use a sodium coolant and operate in low pressure conditions, which is inherently safer. And we use natural air circulation for cooling the reactor down. And so we don't have a lot of extra pumps or components and things that could potentially fail. We've kind of cut out and simplified the design as much as possible, not only to strip out costs, but also to improve safety. These are all considerations in the design, but I think ultimately we're not building something brand new here. We're building on a proven technology that ran for 30 years at Idaho National Lab and has many other examples throughout the world. And so for all those reasons, we feel like the safety case is incredibly strong. Yeah, the term I hear a lot is walk away safe, right? Can't overheat, can't have thermal runaway. That's what we're after. Same thing as some of the other SMR folks. Exactly. And that's why this natural air circulation is so critical because we're not even relying on any additional components for pumping that kind of coolant, et cetera. In a worst case scenario, basically the system will just cool itself off. And this isn't just theoretical. This was actually been tested and proven. So at Idaho, they ran these pretty extreme extreme scenario test where they basically cut power to the reactor. They were using a pump for their sodium coolant and the whole reactor cooled itself down using natural air circulation. This has been put through these stress tests, this approach and this design. Brian, large nuclear facilities, you know where there are. There's about 100 of them in the United States. But when we get into things like SMRs, one of the big selling points was that it wouldn't need as much of a footprint. It could be a lot tighter. And then, of course, I'm sure Oklo also has designs on having a pretty small footprint. So what do you do about people who are concerned about this idea that you would have a nuclear power plant very close by and maybe not as high profile as some of those large nuclear power plants? that are kind of off on their own. Our footprint is incredibly small. So we're looking at for a 15 megawatt electric plant that would sit on about two acres and that's inclusive of everything. That's including the parking lot and any kind of administration building for the workers, for the reactors themselves, the air-cooled condensers. That's the entire footprint to the fence line of the facility. And if you were to add additional modules, so for every additional 15 megawatt electric that you're adding, it's not linear. It's not multiplying by two. It's actually adding one additional acre because there's a lot of common infrastructure. For example, you're not going to need multiple parking lots necessarily, and you're also getting a lot of efficiency in terms of labor and operations. And so when you're thinking about this kind of scale, what we're talking about is, you know, about a two acre site, or if you're adding these additional modules, you're adding an additional acre. It's incredibly compact and small in terms of that footprint. And because of the architectural design, Design, which was a very conscious decision by Jake and Carol and the founders, is to have this not only function differently, but look differently in terms of how it integrates into the local community, into the landscape. We're engaged right now with master plan communities where there's large residential developments where these Oklo powerhouses will be integrated nearby into this community, right, where people are living in their homes. It's not going to look in any significant way out of place because it's going to just blend in into these environments. And so that's what we want. We want it to be something that, you know, if you were to drive by it on the street, you wouldn't necessarily even know it's a nuclear power plant. You'd just think it's an interesting commercial building or something like that, a residential building. Sure. And so you're the head of business development. What's it been like selling a technology that's new, still needs a permit, hopefully pretty soon? What's that experience been like for you? 
Well, our customers are usually planning three to five years ahead. So the license lead time hasn't really been a blocking issue for me in my day-to-day engagement with customers. Now, obviously, any customer that's embracing a new technology, you have the adoption curve, right? You have your innovators and your early adopters, and then the people that wait to kick the tires. And then you have your late adopters and your laggards. So you have that whole spectrum, that technology adoption curve. So obviously, we're focused on customers that are more in that early adopter, innovator part of the curve curve that are just interested in trying something new and embracing a new technology. So we're not going to be targeting everyone, but generally those early adopters and those innovators are looking at this kind of time horizon of three to five years anyway. And so the license lead time hasn't really been an issue so far. Yeah. And then what kind of customers are we targeting? You talked about some communities, conventional utilities, possibly, maybe they think it's low risk, low outlay. We're targeting data centers, military bases, energy intensive manufacturers, industrial facilities, remote communities, and some utilities, obviously, as well. But I think that's a real differentiator for Oklo compared to maybe some of the other folks in the space that seems like they're focused a lot on the traditional model of selling to utilities where they're licensing their design and then the utility builds it. We're really taking a different approach. We're targeting these energy intensive commercial and industrial customers, and we're looking to even be behind the meter in a lot of cases on these. And given that we have really innovative on the business model, because ultimately we're selling reliable 24-7 clean energy. We're not selling equipment or a license or something like that. Because we're selling power, that's what they want. They don't want to own and operate any kind of power plant, much less a small nuclear power plant. And so we're selling them what they want and can adapt in such a way because of our small footprint that we can either be on site, let's say at a data center, or nearby. It doesn't always have to be right at the facility. If we're in an area like Northern Virginia, the highest concentration of data centers in the world, we could be located in a region where we're surrounded by data centers and have multiple offtake agreements with different data centers. There's different models and we have a lot of flexibility, but those are examples of some of the customers that I'm engaging with on a day-to-day basis. What about the ability of these units to ramp up generation? Nuclear plants have conventionally just been baseload. They're always on. And I assume this is doing a steam cycle. What's the ability of these units to be able to ramp up and down their energy production? It differs depending on the site and the requirements, and we can adapt. There's various strategies that we can employ to accommodate that. We can also use some type of storage as well, like a battery or some other mechanism to basically help with that load following or ramping. But ideally, we're operating these things as baseload, right? I mean, there's a primary energy system, it's baseload power. We have a capacity factor of 95% and it's like the workhorse is just running all the time. But we can ramp up and down and we can load follow and we can use other tools in our toolkit like batteries to help buffer some of the needs depending on the application and the site. Yeah, I've looked up Oklo and I think sometimes what comes up for some people is a geologically occurring nuclear availability. So do you sometimes have some confusion about what you, Oklo, the company is doing in this Oklo phenomenon where there's this idea that you might be able to derive nuclear power naturally from the earth? Partially, the example you're using was part of the inspiration for the name of this natural nuclear power reaction that happened in the earth and that we're kind of harnessing and leveraging that and creating technology around it. Yeah, I was kind of going back and forth before we talked. I was like, I think they're doing the underground nuclear. It's like, oh, no, no, no. They've got their own unit. Sure. And just for clarity, our systems are put below grade. The building on the site is obviously above grade, but the actual reactors, there's a basement within the building and then the actual reactors are below 
Oklahoma great. It is underground, technically. One of the things that was brought to my attention when Oklahoma was first brought under my radar was that your founders have been featured in at least two documentaries at this point. One was The New Fire, and the other one is Oliver Stone's new documentary, Nuclear. And I don't think nuclear is available. I think the only way to see nuclear would have actually been to walk the red carpet in Venice or something. So forgive us for not seeing that yet. How did they get approached, and why do you think Oklo is such a darling for these filmmakers? Well, advanced vision overcomes a lot of the problematic areas of conventional plants, you know, high costs, slow licensing and construction, and other challenges with our large-scale nuclear power plants. So I think there's a lot of interest in these newer, smaller, advanced designs. And Oakland is really driving a lot of the modernization and trying to do things in a new and innovative way, not just on the technology side, but also in areas like the business model that we talked about earlier, you know, the fact that we offer power purchase agreements and we aren't just selling equipment. And so I think those kind of qualities, when they see the innovation, not only in the technology side, but on the business model. They're looking to feature companies like that. And Oklo ranks high in those categories. And I think because of that fundamentally different approach to how we're tackling the problem, there's just been a lot of interest. I mean, for clarity, Oklo never sought out these documentaries. We were just approached for these kinds of filming opportunities. Yeah. And on the subject of the Oliver Stone film, I think a lot of people, when they saw that Oliver Stone is doing a documentary about nuclear energy that is pro-nuclear, I think that a lot of folks were going, okay, well, maybe this is a sea change for a lot of progressives out there. You know, there's a lot of environmentalists who love nuclear energy, and there's a lot who don't want anything to do with it. And so I think they kind of saw that as a sea change for a lot of progressives out there that, yeah, it's okay to like nuclear. And why do you think that might have taken so long. Well, environmentalists in countries around the world are really waking up to the reality that nuclear power is the only 24-7 zero emission energy source. And if they're wanting to tackle these big global problems like climate change, that it's going to be necessary to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, the intermittency of solar and wind, you can only get so far with those technologies if you're going to try to replace baseload power. And nuclear power has these really unique characteristics that it's 24-7, it's that rock solid base load power and has these zero emission attributes. So I think you're starting to see people just wake up to this reality that if you're really wanting to make a dent into reducing greenhouse gas emissions, nuclear power is going to have to play a very instrumental role in that. All right, Brian, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Natural gas is a clean burning transition fuel, and it's really critical for core industrial processes. Crude oil. Crude oil is still oil fuels like 97% of the global transportation in the world. And so it's really, I think, still a critical resource for us to run modern society. Nuclear, you guys. Well, nuclear, obviously I'm biased, but I believe is the most powerful zero emission energy source that we've invented so far and and is going to be essential for our upgrading and modernizing our energy system. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. Well, coal has been the workhorse of the global energy system. And as we see now, a lot of countries having to go back and rely on it because it is so cost effective and it has helped lift so many millions of people, billions of people out of poverty that didn't have access to power previously. Wind. It's intermittent, and so it has its challenges. I think the positive attributes of it is that obviously it's zero emission while operating, but it has some significant drawbacks when it comes to intermittency. Solar. Solar has a ton of promise. It's a very romantic idea. I think we all love the idea of powering civilization through the sun. But on those cloudy days or in climates where you just don't get a lot of sun, you're going to have to have alternatives. 
biofuels. Biofuels, to me, don't make a lot of sense. Growing food for fuel just seems incredibly inefficient. The amount of land and chemicals and fertilizer, et cetera, that you use to grow food for fuel just is not a very efficient approach. Hydroelectric. Hydroelectric is incredibly clean and efficient, and it's scalable, and it's been used around the world to lift a lot of people out of poverty. And I think where you have those kind of conditions available, I think it's an excellent option. Geothermal. Geothermal is an incredible, clean way to generate baseload power. The only drawbacks of geothermal is it's just not available everywhere. Energy storage. Energy storage is going to be an essential tool to help bridge the various volatility on the energy grid. And so I think as we are starting to merge in various technologies, it's going to play a really critical role in buffering that volatility. Energy efficiency. We should always be striving to be as energy efficient as we can and to use our resources as wisely and effectively as we possibly can. I think one of the myths about energy efficiency, though, is that it actually saves energy, where the more energy efficient things become, we find new and better ways to use that energy. And so we actually oftentimes increase energy use, which I think is a very positive thing for the world. And we should continue to strive to make things more streamlined, more efficient. And then finally, fusion power. The holy grail, fusion, right? I mean, it's something I think is very exciting. I think there's a lot of developments recently in the scientific realm to try to get to this net positive milestone in terms of generating more power than you use. So it's exciting. I think it's still very far off in terms of actually generating power on the grid for utilities. But I think it's a worthwhile and interesting technology that we should be investing in for the future. All right, Brian Gitt, Oklahoma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat. And if people are interested, they can learn more about me on my website, which is briangit.com or follow me on Twitter at briangit. And obviously, if you have any additional questions or want more information about Oklo, please don't hesitate to reach out. That was Brian Gitt, head of business development for Oklo, a small modular reactor developer based in California. Brian first came to my radar through his Twitter feed, which has some interesting takes on clean energy. I also want to point out that Oliver Stone's nuclear documentary also features another friend of show. Joshua Goldstein from episode 51 is credited as a writer on the documentary, and Stone has said Joshua's book A Bright Future was a catalyst for the film. We discussed that book on Joshua's episode back in 2019. I want to thank Brian and the Oklo team for their time. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 155. Be sure to join us next week when we explore the path to commercialization for zinc batteries. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.